If you're an American conservative, you know that the societal values we hold sacred are under attack. They are hanging in the balance. How can you protect those values? By staying informed. The closing argument will deliver news and supporting evidence you need to support and defend those values. Here's Paul Smith. Good morning. This is Paul Smith, your host of The Closing Argument. In this podcast, we will discuss some of the important but controversial moral, legal, and political issues that affect us and our families today. Some of the things that we discuss are not politically correct, but we will discuss them anyway. We need to do this to preserve our liberties, to establish the truth, and to let the world know that there are many people who challenge some of the views that have gained acceptance in our schools, our media, and our government. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about the history of the climate change hoax, how it came about, and, and the history of how it has been exposed. I'm going to mention some things that many of you have already heard of, but I'm going to include them in a hopefully concise discussion that will be very helpful to you. First of all, let me mention a couple of things. Uh, I have discussed climate these climate change issues with two scientists that are pretty sharp, uh, one of whom has published peer-reviewed articles for a number of years, a plant geneticist, another one who is a PhD microbiologist from, from Yale University. Both are sharp individuals. And, and the interesting thing about my discussion with them is they are reluctant, in my opinion, to express a, an overall opinion about climate change. And I think the reason is they are experts in their field. And once you're an expert, you are reluctant to draw conclusions without having fully examined the basis for it. And they have their particular fields. And so they're just reluctant to go out on a limb and and get into things over their head. They don't want to mess up their credibility. And and they're just very thorough, uh, good scientists. Uh, As I presented my material to them, they did not present material to me to undermine or really even challenge my conclusions. But I mention that because I think as you talk to people about climate change, when you get to people who are really expert, you will find this reluctance to to adopt things that they're not sure of. Uh, Second thing I'd like to point out is how how climate change has become politicized is in large part due to the governmental funding. And uh, unfortunately or not, it has become politicized. Uh, If you were to do some research on any number of topics, you gotta get funds for it. And a lot of this funding comes from the government and the government controls who gets the money. So right now, uh, a lot of this funding is controlled by people who subscribe to the climate change view that humans are causing it. So if you propose research on a subject that's in line with that, you're more likely to get it. And so this this government involvement in science is actually has become counterproductive and is participating in this this disinformation. Now, having said that, in this discussion today, we are going to discuss about 10 different parts of the uh, climate change hoax history including how it developed and and how it has been exposed. We're going to talk about the IPCC, what it is, the Santer study, the Mann study, the rebranding that occurred, the inconvenient truth 
book and movie by Al Gore, the Supreme Court case of Massachusetts versus the EPA, the Minority Report of 2008, Climate Gate of 2009, the Paris Climate Accords, and the Green New Deal. So let's get into this right away. Uh, the IPCC, which we talked about in one of the other programs, is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It was formed in 2008, uh, 1988 by the UN. And for those of you who remember that era, it, was, it came on the, on the heels of the, of the exposure of hydrofluorocarbons as being very dangerous to our atmosphere and climate. Hydrofluorocarbons are used in styrofoam containers. And at that time, and it was like 1987, McDonald's was using them for their sandwiches. And because of the exposure of how bad the hydrofluorocarbons were, <clears throat> McDonald's stopped using them and other companies did too. Uh, there's been a comeback, but, but, the, uh, but that was a, an era and a, regarded as a great international success as the world combined to say, hey, we got to cut back on these um, styrofoam containers because they harm the environment. So in 1988, the UN formed this uh, panel to show that uh, humans were causing damages to our climate and, and causing global warming. Itso Carter and Singer said that the IPCC was crippled at birth because it was mandated by the UN that it define climate change as human cause. And from 1996 to about 2010, there were like six or seven different studies that have exposed the many flaws of the IPCC. There was a study by Seats in 1996, by Linzen in 2012, Toll 2014, Stavins 2014, and a book uh, of rigorously researched book by Patrick Michaels. Dr. Spencer says that the IPCC is primarily a political adv advocacy group that cloaks itself in the aura of scientific respectability while it cherry picks the science that best supports its desired policy outcomes and marginalizes or ignores science that might contradict the party line. Spencer calls this a perversion. And uh, so from here, uh, oh, let me mention one other group. In 2010, the Amsterdam-based Inter-Academy Council, IAC, made a report that audited IPCC findings and concluded that it had serious defects, including fake confidential interviews, too much reliance on unpublished and non-peer-reviewed sources, political interference, the use of secret unshared data, selecting contributors based upon political views and excluding opposing views. The IPCC basically has no credibility. One of the problems with this is the funding cycle. It's, the, the government has been so politicized in science that it has, and, and many of the agencies have adopted the climate change, uh, human-caused climate change being a problem, and they are financing studies that support that conclusion. If you were to want to publish a study that 
challenged or refuted that, you'd have great difficulty getting uh, getting publication because uh, the government and, and its political views are now controlling research. So this is something that is going on, and it's a real part of this problem. It's why the climate change hoax has gained so much momentum and why it is been has been difficult to challenge and and, uh, and refute some of its unscientific sign findings. The, I think what's happened, the IPC had hoped and believed that the science would support its, you know, theor theoretical conclusion that humans were causing devastating uh, destruction to the earth, but the science has not supported it. It has actually refuted it, as we've discussed in some of our other other studies. Um, we mentioned the Santer study before. This was a 1995 study by um, by Benjamin Santer, who who concluded that this that there was a great degree of global warming going on, and it was alarming to him. The problem with his study is that the time he started and ended his study, there was warming, but immediately before and immediately after, there was cooling, and it. And his study, the time he picked, basically then misrepresented what was going on. A similar problem with the Mann, Michael Mann study that appeared in 1998. His has been dubbed the hockey stick because he showed gradual warming for a period of time and then a very sharp decline, uh, uh, incline that is the, you know, the, the up part of the hockey stick. But again, his problem had the same, his study was subject to the same problem. A, from 1998, when he ended his study to 2014, the temperatures were flat and it, it um, undermined his conclusions. He was also criticized for some of the, the, uh, some of the aspects of his study he, his, his study uh, of a globing trend covered many years, I think hundreds of years, and he did not account for the little ice age that occurred in the 1800s and some other things. So his has been disputed. We talked about that in another program. Uh, following that in 2000, 2006, we have uh, Al Gore came out with his book, uh, inconvenient truth. And in that book, he again said that humans were causing, causing global warming and climate change. And the book was made into a film. It even won him an Academy Award and a Nobel Peace Prize, the latter of which he shared with the IPCC. It was an extremely effective tool in increasing and, and uh, maintaining the hysteria of the environmental extreme extremists. He said, we're at a tipping point, And he said, we have to take drastic measures or within 10 years, we're going to have a catastrophe. So that was 2007. It's interesting how the two, the 10 year threat seems to come up. He was not the first to, to announce a 10 year threat. Someone had done it before him. And then more recently, uh, Alexandria Ocasio, Ocasio-Cortez has talked about it and others in connection with the Green New Deal. And that was beginning in 2010. They're talking about 10 years. They just, excuse me, 2020. So they continue to 
just totally picked 10 years out of the blue. There's no scientific data to support the 2000 and, uh, or the 10 year, 10 year uh, deadline. Um, Dr. Spencer calls uh, Al Gore's book a disinformation campaign based on a litany of scientific half-truths, exaggerations, and inaccuracies. Uh, the science actually undermines and actually refutes the findings of Gore. Lord Christopher Morton told the U.S. Congress in 2009, the right response to the non-problem of global warming is to have the courage to do nothing. This is 2006 when this book came on the scene. About that time, and even a little earlier, the environmentalist movement began to change. For years, for the first 10 or 15 years, it was the global warming was the mantra it marched under. But as the global warming uh, was disproved, as I said, the, there was no global warming for at least 10 years in the first part of the 21st century. But they, they just adapted the, the mantra of climate change and have marched forward. And as we discussed before, that really is a brilliant move because climate change is so vague and broad, you cannot, it's hard to disprove it. Of course, they can't prove it either. And in fact, the human catastrophic part of it has been refuted by science. In 2007, uh, the Supreme Court entered into the fray and made a contribution that has really been very helpful to the environmentalists, but it is legally and factually flawed. I won't get into some of the legal aspects of it. I am an attorney and that when I when it was first decided in 2007, I read it, I, I just shook my head. I could not believe. Uh, basically, the Supreme Court justices took a case by dispensing with the laws of standing that they uh, that they had honored for years and and because they wanted to take the case. So they took the case and then they said CO2 is a pollutant. I mean, that is a ridiculous, ignorant conclusion. That's like saying oxygen or water are pollutants. I mean, I guess you could drown, so then then I guess water becomes bad, and I guess you can get too much oxygen. But the fact is, you need CO2 for plant life. Plants cannot live without it. And we are up to, as I've discussed on another program, a little over 400 parts per million in our atmosphere today. But uh, there is scientific evidence that that maybe 1,200 parts per million or three times what we've got now would really be good for plants. And there's no evidence that that would be harmful to humans. So um, the anyway, that was a big help. This was followed a year later in beginning in late November after the presidential election of 2008 when uh, Barack Obama was elected. Uh, Congress was... There was a slight majority of Democrats in Congress, and they issued a report from the House Select Committee on Energy Independence, Independence and Global Warming, concluding that humans were causing global warming and climate change. Uh, that was in late November. And then in December, a Senate minority report by the, the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee issued what is called the Minority Report that refuted that, disputed it. And in that report, the minority report was joined by more than 650 scientists from around the world. So 
the there was a almost 50-50 split of opinion on whether humans were causing catastrophic climate change. The interesting thing about this is the those who had the slight majority began to advance the view that 97% of the people concurred that the humans were causing climate change and insisted that we move on, that the debate was over. But as we've shown, the consensus uh, claim is a total hoax. And, um, and the science now actually, a lot of science disputes it. So when, when in 2008, when that minority report came out, I remember following it, I got a copy of it, I read some of it, and I tried to find some books. There were very few books that dealt with the climate change issue that I could find at that time. But I will tell you, in the 10 or 12 years since then, there have been numerous books that, that attack this so that it is clear there is no consensus that humans are destroying the climate through their actions. So that was followed by what is called climate change. In 2009, someone hacked and published over a thousand emails of individuals who were involved in the climate research unit of the United Kingdom's University of East Anglia. And when, when the emails were disclosed, it was shown that many of the participants in the climate change, uh, the humans were causing catastrophic climate change, that they were manipulating uh, evidence and, and saying things that they knew were not true. They were caught red-handed, artificially manufacturing evidence. And uh, as this became known, a number of scientists began to look more closely at the work of the IPCC. And, and of course, the, these emails, these people caught red-handed were working hand-in-glove with the IPCC. And at that point, a number of the scientists parted ways. One of them was Judith Curry, who we talked about on another program, who was, was chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Tech. And she explained that based on that, she had to look more carefully and began to see that, that some of the conclusions that she had accepted without you know, doing independent research, that they were, they were not true. They were based on problematic foundations. She parted ways with the IPCC and other scientists have similarly distanced themselves from the IPC since then. The, in 2016, the United States became involved in the Paris Climate Accords. Um, Secretary of State John Kerry signed those accords. Uh, they were not ratified by the Senate and probably have no hope of being ratified because it would take, a, I think, a two-thirds vote of the Senate to ratify them. Uh, so as you know, when President Trump was elected in 2016, he quickly departed from the uh, Paris Climate Accords. And then when President Biden was elected in 2020, he promptly uh, entered the U.S. back into those climate accords. But the climate accords are a problem for at least four reasons that I want to explain. First, the catastrophic predictions about climate change are speculation that is not supported by science. Second, the measures called for in the Paris Accords will not affect or improve the climate. Third, the accord requires the United States 
to make substantial and expensive steps to eliminate fossil fuels rapidly and to build solar and wind energy systems, but this would disrupt the economy by killing jobs and increasing energy costs. The urgency to do this is not warranted and it will actually cause more problems and it won't fix the problem they say exists. And finally, the nations responsible for 72% of the world's greenhouse, uh, human greenhouse gas emissions are not committed to do anything. They include India, China, and Russia, whose populations comprise more than 40% of the world's population. So by exempting China and Russia and India, the, the accords, what they do is they, there is no international consensus. It puts an excessive burden on the U.S. to do something that is futile. It is a total waste. Finally, we'll talk about the Green New Deal that was first introduced about 2019 or 2020. And AOC was one of the proponents of it. When it was introduced in a bill in the Senate, um, one of the senators who opposed it called for a vote on it right away. And it, and it was initially voted down zero to 57. Nobody voted for it. A lot of people voted present so they wouldn't have to vote against the bill. But, but the reason it failed at that point was because they, it was immediately forecast that it would cost about $93 trillion to implement the Green New Deal. And nobody was in a position to justify such a great expenditure. So it's kind of languished, but actually it, is, it has now gone forward in other proposals. It was a part of President Biden's Build Back Better plan. It was a, it was a part of the, uh, the, uh, the bill that was introduced and passed in the pandemic. They paid a lot of money to uh, deal with the, the harm from the pandemic. And uh, so it is, and it continues to be part of some of the proposals in, in Congress today. Uh, the, one of the measures that's been a, a politically uh, at the forefront in the last year is the infrastructure bill. And the infrastructure bill, in fact, includes many aspects and components of the Green New Deal, although they, they're quiet on that and pretend that's not the case. Here are some aspects of the Green New Deal that, that I think are alarming. So the Green New Deal is, was tagged primarily as an environmental proposal, but actually the meat of it is actually a socialist and economic program that would be drastic uh, drastically expensive and, uh, and transformational, moving us more towards socialism. Um, and, and so it's, it's a great concern to me and many others. Here are some of the aspects of the Green New Deal I just want to mention briefly. Uh, guaranteeing a job with a family-sustaining wage, uh, adequate family and medical leave, paid vacations, and retirement security for all people. Two, providing people in, in the U.S. with high-quality health care, affordable, safe, and adequate housing, economic security, cl and clean water, clean air, and affordable food, and so forth. The, I want to highlight, though, the high-quality health care. Now, health care is not now one of the main issues that has drawn national attention. Uh, it was, five or ten years ago, it was, it was the big issue. But if you're going to have government health care and you're going to have premium health care for, for everyone, 
this is economically not sustainable. This would be a create a real problem. We would not be able to do what we set out to do. If there is going to be some kind of uh, health care for everyone, it's going to have to be at a minimal level. It's just not would not be economical economically sustainable. You can't have everyone a right to the most expensive new um, procedures that come around as they come around. All right, third, the upgrading and, and repairing of our infrastructure by eliminating pollution and greenhouse gases, including upgrading buildings, roads, and, and our transportation system. As you, if you follow what's going along right now, uh, as the price of gas has doubled in the last year and a half, and and as it has gotten worse due to the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, the government proposal and the Biden administration is, hey, well, you're going to have to suffer with higher gas. We're going to have to, everybody's going to have to get a uh, an electronic vehicle, and hey, that's just the way it is. We got to do what's right. The problem with this, yeah, it would, it, all these things will be costly. But the science doesn't support that these changes are going to affect the environment. That's the problem. It's, it's futile, and it will hurt the economy at the same time. And another couple of uh, points with the Green New Deal. Uh, massive growth is needed in clean manufacturing, removing pollution and greenhouse gas emissions from manufacturing and industry. Well, of course, they're going after the coal industry, and shutting coal power plants down is a, a prime objective. But the problem again is, is the, what the coal emissions are doing to the environment. It, it's not causing global warming. And, and, it is, and the extra CO2 that it is emitting it is slight in the entire scope of things. And frankly, uh, We'll run out of fossil fuel before the burning of coal ever does anything of disastrous effect to our climate. And finally, the point I'll mention that the Green New Deal is working collaboratively with farmers and ranchers to eliminate pollution and greenhouse gas emissions. This includes curtailing the beef industry. And basically, if you, as you watch the food prices, you'll see that these they're on their way to doing this. So that just is a quick summary of some of the things that that have happened. And it's interesting, though, the hoax has now been exposed uh, to those who are willing to see it, yet fanatical and damaging policies and programs continue to roll forward in the Biden administration. And the damage from the hoax will closely follow unless we eventually come to acknowledge it's a hoax and step back and examine scientifically sound policies and, and that are warranted by the science. So that's our discussion for today. I hope that's helpful. Remember that the liberties we enjoy in America can be maintained only when its citizens are moral and informed participants in the democratic processes. The closing arguments can help us, can help us to do this. And I encourage all of you who you're interested, you can get my book, The Climate Change Hoax Argument at my website, www.cpaulsmith.com. We'll see you next time. This is Paul Smith.